Welcome to the second season of Better News, the series of special podcasts It's Health Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is funded by API and the Knight Lenfest News Initiative. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research API has published as part of its Better News Initiative. The Sacramento Bee has used groups outside of mainstream media to attract new readers, gain access to a diverse talent pool of journalists, and elevate the voices of under-resourced communities in the Sacramento area. Ryan Lillis is the assistant managing editor at The Bee, and Liv Monaghan is the editor-at-large of the Community Voices Project. We talked to both of them as part of this interview today, but we're going to be hearing a little bit more from Ryan as he shares the context of how this project fits into the broader strategy of the Sacramento Bee. Ryan and Olivia, welcome to Better News. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be on. Yes, thank you. So, so Ryan, let's let's start off with you. What problem was the B trying to solve by doing its uh, Community Voices project? Fundamentally, what we were trying to solve, and I'm not sure we'll ever solve it, but I guess the problem we were trying to address was our own long-standing track record of not just underserving a lot of communities, but in many cases, doing wrong by those communities. Whether it was picking and choosing the stories we did out of communities of color, focusing a lot on crime, but not on triumphs and not on culture and not on resources. And so that was our guiding principle, was the acknowledgement that the B like, frankly, most mainstream media, but I, I'm, I'm going to focus just solely on the B here, we had really underserved so many of our communities for so long. And we're frankly not really in a position ourselves to be able to just kind of flip a switch and suddenly solve or address that. And so what we really needed and what, you know, what we were so fortunate to have were to build allies like Liv and others who had not just the connections, but the experiences in these communities, had those voices. And we just said, you know what? We've got this platform here. You know, take the reins to our platform. We're going to elevate your voices because a common mistake that media makes is they go into a community, an under-resourced community, a resilient community. They go into a community like that and they say, we're going to go give that community a voice, which is the wrong way to look at it. These communities have voices but you can elevate their voices. And so that's really what we were trying to do was to elevate the voices of these under-resourced, resilient communities and, you know, frankly, get out of the way a little bit and, and let them, you know, empower them to tell their stories. So how were you able to do that, to elevate those communities, identify those groups and then, you know, approach them and then through some process, elevate them? Yeah, so... Liv will recall, it all kind of started in a backyard in Oak Park, a neighborhood in Sacramento. Last October, Liv and I, another journalist, Alexander Ewan Hendricks from The Bee, and Andrew DeFay, a friend of ours, uh, of Liv's, a colleague and trusted ally, we, we kind of started to hammer this out and brainstorm. You know, how could we, what would the model look like? We met with more community members to kind of start to create a blueprint for what would be the best way. And we learned a few things from that. One was we're going to need funding, right? So we were, again, really fortunate. I was able to apply for and receive a grant from Facebook through a community journalism initiative they have. So when we were publishing the work of these emerging journalists, you know, we were able to pay them more than the 
frankly, you know, the smaller fees that freelancers in the newspaper industry often get, we were, were able to pay these journalists closer to, you know, their worth. You put in a lot of hours on a work, you should be compensated for it. So that grant was a big key. And another key element, you know, key message early on was that, you know, while I helped kind of formulate the plan with others, it was really clear early on that me, a middle-aged white male, should not be the guy editing the stories, you know, for content because of my own blind spots, you know, something that I may think is not that important in a story might be vital to the artist, to the writer, to the author. And so we were able to bring on Liv to act as kind of a, as our editor at large and a point person, do that frontline editing. I was able to help with kind of the back end editing for grammar and, and things like that, but not any kind of substantial perspective or voice editing. And then we went public. This is the key element, I think, for anyone thinking about this model is going public, listening. I mean, listening is number one. And, and Liv and I have had lots of conversations about ways that the B should change. And the key is just listening. And it maybe sounds easier said than done, but you just, you got to listen and you got to be willing to change, get able to change quickly and adapt. And so we had a public event and listened to the community and admitted, you know, publicly that the B had not been serving communities of color, diverse communities appropriately. And with that acknowledgement, I hope helped build a little bit of credibility. And then the program lifted off from there. So Liv, tell me a little bit about your involvement in the development and sort of this, you know, live event and launch. Well, the first thing that we did was to open the call out to the public, not for pitches, but rather for our communities to come and sit down with us and really be able to sort of grill us on what it is that we were going to be doing and kind of give us input as well into what it is that we should have been focusing on and what we should be focusing on in the future. So that was a huge component that we first went into it. And another component was also to make sure that the people who were working on the project initially were members of the communities that we were trying to reach out to in the first place. So, you know, for myself, I'm Mexican you know, I'm a woman, there's different intersections that I happen across. I come from Oak Park, which is a marginalized community here in Sacramento, which is now being gentrified. So it brings about a whole other <laughs> different level to it. And then with the people that we worked within the project with, we all had our community connections and ties because we'd been working in our communities for so long. So it allowed us to kind of already have an understanding of like, people who may have already known the stories that we needed to tell because we built those relationships and it allowed us to start approaching people. It allowed folks to kind of trust the idea of pitching to a mainstream media company that they maybe wouldn't have before, or they never would have considered even trying since they weren't, you know, quote unquote journalists. So that's how we initially started it and how we kind of were able to find the, the right voices to begin to elevate and allowed us to expand to find additional voices through the outreach and the stories being told in the first place. And this, I guess, can go to both of you or either of you. You know, what were some of those initial stories that you were telling? You know, because the project coincided quite, you know, obviously not intentionally because we don't control how the things go in the world, but the project tended to coincide with the reopen protests and the, just the, the COVID situation here in California. It also happened to really start to take steam when the 
George Floyd killing happened. And because of that, and because of those two huge factors going on in the country that were really shaping how things were turning out across, you know, across our states, those stories were starting to be the ones that we initially uplifted. So things talking about what was going on with the George Floyd situation, police brutality in general, what it was really looking like for people in Sacramento, especially in these communities, to live through pretty much a, you know, a plague, if you, know, if you want to be funny about it. But those kinds of stories were where we initially started. And it expanded as time went on to really include different things about what equity in the media looked like. And one of the articles I specifically wrote called out the mainstream media. And I actually called our paper out in the article that was printed in our paper. So those types of things where we were really confronting narratives that had been presented and how to, to really focus on the communities that we're trying to reach out to, those stories are kind of where we started. And it's just continued to grow and expand as time's gone on because we've had more voices that have been able to be included in the project. Well, I'll say that the stories that had the most impact, and by impact I meant, you know, most readership, most engagement on social media, the stories that really seem to be resonating with readers were stories about you know, news of the day. And so I hate to use this term fortunate because it's tied to such a horrific event, but this all started, you know, we started to really build momentum in March and April. And so by the time May and June of 2020 rolled around and there were, there was a social justice movement, you know, the protests and the demonstrations, we were positioned to be able to do more than the superficial coverage, more than the, what Liv is talking about, where it was, you know, from the traditional white male perspective coverage of the demonstrations and really the under and the message from the demonstrations that followed the killing of George Floyd. And we were able to, and, and this is entirely a credit to, to live and the others who were on this from the beginning, you know, we were able to tap into and elevate voices who were directly involved in the movement, as opposed to us, you know, covering it from an outsider's point of view where you might be well-intentioned, but you're never going to capture the full context. And so, you know, I'll recall that the Sunday of uh, Memorial Day weekend, just the beginning of this, of the demonstrations, you know, we ran a, a column on the front page of our Sunday newspaper from one of our key contributors, a young man named Paul Willis, that was racism exists in, in the Sacramento, racism is in America, it's systemic, and this is a moment. And so it was just, Again, I hate to use that term fortunate because it's tied to a, such a horrific chain of events. But boy, we were really able to, to capture a voice and elevate a voice and a perspective that we would have never had any opportunity to do that. And again, that's all credit to Liv and Paul and others who were guiding us through all of this. Because again, if it were just you know me guiding this or whatever, it would have been the same kind of picking and choosing which you were able to get. But by empowering new voices, we were able to get a fresh perspective and it re and it resonated. It really resonated with readers and was just really, I'm really grateful that we were able to do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you, you both to think a little terms in nuts and bolts. We talk about elevating voices. Can you tell me specifically what that means? You know, how do you pick the people that you 
that you want to do these stories and you know how do you you know set up a, a system that they're able to report and bring that content to the Sacramento Bee? Yeah, I mean, I can just speak kind of you know logistically. So it started with the public event. It's fairly straightforward. I mean, we created an email voices at sapi.com and sought submissions. You know, our plan pre-pandemic was to host monthly events because kind of on a parallel track in terms of the philosophy of this program was something that we were calling the community to newsroom pipeline where we were hoping to cultivate and train and guide the next generation of journalists in Sacramento. And you know, unfortunately, the pandemic obviously put a halt to those plans. We weren't able to meet in public past our initial event, but it was, you know, word of mouth, social media, submit stuff to this email and, you know, live, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think out of all the submissions we got, I think there was only one that we were not publishing. And it wasn't because of anything that this, it wasn't story subject or anything like that. It was just, it was very long or it wasn't quite what we were looking for. But I mean, we, you know, we really, we published just about every submission we got and we got a lot. And so it was, that was kind of the process. For me, you know, I'm not a, a nuts and bolts person so much. I'm more of a, a thoughts and feels person. But for me, elevating voices in our community looked like really analyzing what the bees stories had been previously, where those sources were coming from previously, who the reporters were going out and talking to and how the reporters were presenting the stories that they were telling. And when we kind of stood back and looked at the big picture of that, one of the things that we had realized was that a lot of the stories and the sources and the people telling the stories regardless of what community it was in, were predominantly cishet white men. And that statistic kind of showed us that we're clearly not talking to the people that we need to be talking to, especially when it comes to the types of communities and stories that we're attempting to tell. You know, for example, if you were to look at an old story about, say, Stefan Clark, and you were to look to who the journalist that was covering that story, maybe cited for sourcing, they would have talked to the police, they would have talked to maybe a politician to get their opinions, but they weren't talking to the community that was being affected by what was happening, that was being impacted on a daily basis by what was happening after Stefan Clark was murdered. And for us to elevate those voices, we, we had to step back and look at that bigger picture and understand that in order for us to change, we had to confront that because it can be uncomfortable to do so. Was it self-perpetuating that once you began, you sort of opened these gates that more and more people saw this as a way to, you know, get their voices out there to share their content and their stories? I can speak from, you know, what we see internally, and I'll provide a little bit of context there first, which is that one thing that as we were formulating the blueprint for this plan, one thing that a lot of people felt very strongly about was that these stories should be offered outside our paywall. So for free, right? And so that you don't have to, you don't have to subscribe to read these. I only, I thought about that for three seconds and, and yes, of course. And for me, the reason that I give when I, cause we are you know, a for-profit business, but the reason where I, uh, that I am able, I'm able to justify that in the company is that how dare us 
ask for residents of communities that we've underserved for years, how dare us ask them to suddenly pay for our content? And so all of the stories in this series have been outside the paywall. And yet, and yet, the stories in this series have directly led to subscription growth for us. We have the data that shows that. In fact, several subscriptions, somewhere to the tune of 40 to 50 new subscriptions out of this series. In addition to tens of thousands of story page views, likely from readers who either hadn't read us in years or had never engaged with us. And so the data shows that, that yes, we're reaching new audiences. And I think a key to that, and I truly believe that a key to us reaching these new audiences is honesty and being upfront with the public and saying and explaining why, why you're doing this, why you're giving it away and admitting to your mistakes and showing a willingness to listen and learn and change. And so that's, you know, that's what we've done. And I think the results have been amazing. And that's all great. But to hear live say that members, that, that residents of these communities, that community members are, and what, you know, we got, we got so much work to do, you know, so much, so much work to do. To hear that there's been progress on that front is just amazing. So, you know, what would you say to another newsroom who might be in a similar situation to the B was, you know, and they wanted to take this sort of approach that you did with Community Voices? What advice would you give them? Yeah, a couple of pieces of advice. One is, because I've seen it before, where you launch an initiative like this, you don't see immediate results, and so you move on, right? It's got to be a long game. I've mentioned to Liv, she's heard me say it a couple of times, you know, we're turning around a 165-year-old ship here, 165-year-old ship being the Sacramento Bee. We can't expect that, you know, hey, look, Oak Park, hey, look, Meadowview, we'll publish some stories from residents of your neighborhood. We're good now, right? Like, no, 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 no. You have to commit to it long-term. You have to. And you have to recognize that you may not see the results right off the bat that you're hoping for but it is a long game and you must commit to it as a long game. And I would also say, in addition to that, it makes sense from a human level. It makes sense from an ethical level. It makes sense from a journalistic equity level. It also makes sense on a business level. Why are you ignoring tens of thousands of potential readers in your communities by not reflecting their experience, by not elevating their voices? Sooner or later, you're going to run out of white suburban subscribers. That just happens. Why would you ignore tens of thousands of potential readers and subscribers? And so you got to commit to it being a long game, but know that if you do it right and you stay committed to it and you make the right connections and you engage with the right people and you do it authentically, that it can make business sense. And so sometimes feel a little uneasy putting it in the dollars and cents terms, but you know, if we're talking about being able to continue this work in a long-term sustainability of our newsrooms, you have to look at it from that point of view as well. So as we kind of wrap up here, I, I wanted you each to think of something that has come out of this that when you think about it makes you happy. Liv, you want to go first? <laughs> well, there's so many things about the Community Voices Project that makes me happy that I'd probably run your podcast into overtime. So I'll pick something that is personally important for me and for the communities that I work within. Not long ago here in Sacramento, 
there was a man named Willie Brown Jr. who was found hung from a basketball rim at a park in South Sacramento. Willie Brown Jr. was a black man and the neighborhood that he was found hung in was a neighborhood that has seen and has since seen crimes that were targeted towards black and brown residents. It was a neighborhood that has seen quite a few Trump truck rally parade situations happening within the communities that it happened in. And despite quite a lot of initial evidence that showed there should have at least been some form of an investigation into the death of Willie Brown, the Sacramento Sheriff's Department immediately closed the case without any form of investigation. They didn't even treat the scene as a crime scene in any way when they initially found it. That kind of a story under normal circumstances within the mainstream media often does not take into account the communities that it's writing about. And it also doesn't take into account the pain and trauma of the people and families that are being affected by it. And it won't necessarily focus on the underlying factors of what happened. It'll just be, oh, this person was found. It was called a suicide and that was the end. There'll be no follow-up. And because of that, family of Willie Brown Jr. did not trust speaking to the media about the situation. And so they weren't having anyone in media involved in what was going on. But the story needed to be told because an investigation did need to happen. There needed to be something that happened with that case and there needed to be someone that was looking into it. And because of the Community Voices Project and because the Sacramento Bee was smart enough to employ people that are actually within the communities that are impacted by these types of situations, Willie Brown Jr.'s family was willing to speak with me and do a story about what happened and about all the questions that had been raised due to the lack of investigation by the Sheriff's Department through the community supporting and through that story getting traction because of the community support, the investigation was reopened independently as well as by the SAC Sheriff Department. And for me, that is one of the most gratifying and important things that I'll probably ever be able to be involved in as a person, let alone as a journalist. And it's having these types of programs in your newsrooms and actually spending the time in the long game to include communities that for 165 years, our specific paper hadn't been, these types of stories are actually going to be told and they'll be able to be told in a way that hasn't been done before. And that's how you change not only your newsroom, but the impact of the media in general. Because right now, mainstream newspapers' readerships are getting older and won't be around. The readerships are going to die soon. And unless you start learning that because communities are changing, you have to change along with it, nothing's going to happen. And and journalism in and of itself will completely alter because of how things are looking now. And that's scary for me. So knowing that we may be able in some small way to change that, even if it's just within the Sacramento and McClatchy family, that's huge. So I think that's one of the happiest things that I've had come out of this program for myself. Ryan, do you got anything to add to that? Yes. The stories 
primarily, you know, and it's been from my perspective just over the past several months, just seeing, helping and playing a very small role in elevating the work of extremely talented emerging journalists like Liv, like, you know, Courtney McKinney, who's written some art pieces for us, for a young man named Khalil Ferguson, who I joke every time I talk to him of, you know, uh, someday I'm going to be voting for him for mayor because he's just a brilliant young man. And so all of that has been special. I'll add something to it also, which was that Community Voices ended up being not just about the stories and this. It really drove some systemic change within the bee, which was long overdue and necessary. So I'll give you two examples. One is we largely, almost exclusively banned the use of the term looting. Term looting has become weaponized. So after demonstrations in Sacramento, like in many cities across the U.S., there was some property damage, which is widely described as looting in the media. We've banned that term because it has racist overtones. It's, it's been weaponized. And so we're not going to be a part of that. All these things I'm saying, by the way, were done with the guidance and advice and some tough love from people like Liv and other allies. And so this isn't like this was just on the B. This was done in partnership with our allies here. We've largely, whenever possible, we avoid getting up close photographs of the faces of demonstrators, recognizing that not only is it an emotional moment for them, but also that, you know, there's a surveillance issue. You know, I don't really feel like I want to play a part in, you know, giving the, the police department any kind of surveillance tool. And so we've tried to do that. You know, we can't, we're not going to be perfect on that, obviously, when there's a large crowd. And frankly, the fact that most, geez, most demonstrators in Sacramento wore, were very careful on coronavirus precautions and wore masks. And so we did have that kind of that help, but just really trying to avoid that when possible, especially with younger people. And then probably the most substantial change we made this summer that came out of these partnerships was we have a new policy on police booking photos and surveillance or mugshots as they're commonly referred to. We have almost exclusively banned the publication of police booking photos, of police surveillance photos and videos. The reason is, is simple, that those images disproportionately feed into stereotypes that crimes are only committed by young black men. And so you will not find a mugshot, a police booking photo or surveillance photo in the pages of the Sacramento Bee with very limited exception. You know, politician gets arrested, imminent public threat. You know, there's a mass shooter or a kidnap. A kidnapping has occurred. Cases of severe, you know, sexual assault or when the police, again, imminent threat, they have identified a specific subject on something where there's a public safety element. Those are our limited exceptions, but, you know, guy arrested for robbing store, nope, never. You know, murder suspect, homicide suspect, nope. And some of that plays into we're trying to do our best to stay true to the constitutional right of uh, innocent until proven guilty. You know, that mugshot policy, we had been kind of kicking around for several months, but it took a real talk conversation between Liv and I on a Saturday about a, a misstep that the B had done on Fourth of July weekend, something we published that that we should have, and I take full full responsibility for it. But by Monday, we had a new mugshot policy. Monday morning, we had a new mugshot policy, and it was in effect Wednesday morning. 
you know, that's a real systemic change that we've made that's being now replicated by other news organizations. And I'm just really happy that that, that came out of this. I've been talking to Ryan Lillis and Liv Monahan of the Sacramento Bee about the Community Voices Project. Liv and uh, Ryan, thanks for being on Better News. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a great experience, and I appreciate everybody who happens to listen. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.